Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, <clears throat> I want to invite you to turn back to uh, where we started last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I told you last week, and most of you know that we have been coming through the book of 2 Corinthians because we're really focusing this year on, on uh, teaching everybody uh, the aspect of ministry, uh, not only to minister in your own family, but minister within our church here and get the people up and ready that, uh, uh, that really want to help me deal with people, with, come in with their issues, and we're really excited about that. And uh, you remember last week we, when we started this chapter, I told you that this chapter, along with chapter 9, really deals with the heart aspect of the minister. I told you, if you remember last week, how that God, uh, he designed two chapters around this. And I told you that, uh, you know, the very issue of, of our attitude of heart uh, is the key to ministry. And we learned some great principles. And, you know, I, I don't know how you do it. When I go through a chapter in the Bible, I will many times list out the main points with the verses where I, where I, uh, where I see them. And, and, how, and then, you know, that way I have a breakdown of it. But you remember last week we talked about um, we talked about some, the importance of some great principles we learned. First of all, we talked about the importance of our attitude of heart, that everything that you and I do, uh, no matter what it is, it's based on attitude of heart. Uh, every relationship you ever build, every job you ever take, and certainly for serving the Lord, uh, attitude of heart is everything. We also saw that uh, as a child of God, as you, you uh, work and you uh, get that attitude of heart, that you develop God's heart. And I showed you that two men in the New Testament that really understood it, uh, John and Paul. We talked a little bit about how that uh, John uh, actually heard the heartbeat of God and how that translates for you and for me is through the Word of God as we hear God's heartbeat. And God's heartbeat is for the souls of men and for uh, to win people to Christ and, and to really fulfill what God uh, saved us for. Uh, we also saw with that that the, the heart of the ministry and the heart of the minister giving to others. And I know I'm biased because of, of who you are and, and how proud I am of, of, of many of you. But, you know, this church has a great uh, giving heart and aspect of, of helping others and, and doing uh, what needs to be done. And I really appreciate that. And it, it all goes back to all these principles that we're talking about. Uh, we, we saw how that, uh, uh, how it all starts with uh, you giving uh, yourself to God first. Coming to that point in your life where you realize what God has done for you, then you give it back to Him. And yet, I showed you last week how that all of this, everything that we talked about, everything you're going to do in life comes back down to man's free will. You choosing that you're going to do what you want to do for God or choosing not to do it. We learned that grace, we talked about grace as a multifaceted concept. It's not just about uh, salvation. We learn that we grow in grace, uh, and we learn in time as we grow in grace to, in ministry, use all the different aspects of grace in all that we do for God. I showed you a great verse in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, that talks about that we are to be, not just have the grace, not just understand the grace, but the Bible says that we are to be stewards of the manifold grace of God. And boy, we talked about that and all that that really uh, gets into. I think probably one of the most important things we talked about last week uh, that really forms the balance in a Christian's life is the concept of grace and truth. Uh, grace being your ability to give to people, but truth being the ability to keep it all within the white lines and keep it all balanced in your life. But I think the greatest thing that I wanted to leave with you last week 
that we learned is I think that we all need to go away and understand that God wants something from us. He gave us the gift of salvation. And the greatest gift that you or I or any Christian could ever give back to God is for one to give themselves to the Lord. And uh, you're going to find uh, today, we'll talk about the second one, but, uh, and then next week the third one, but you're going to find that this chapter is built around three great principles. I like when chapters in the Bible kind of define themselves out easily. Sometimes they'll have two principles that's divided around. Here it's three. Sometimes it's four or five, but it, it makes it easier for me to, to split up that chapter and see how it deals with. But in chapter 8, he deals with three great principles in the ministry uh, of us being as ministers in our hearts to the Lord. And last week, uh, we looked at the first one and uh, our attitude of heart in ministry and giving uh, uh, in, in the grace uh, to this ministry. And we learned that the ministry is giving. We saw the great principle where at the church of Corinth, the Bible says they gave them themselves first and then they did what God wanted them to do. Today, we're going to look at the second one. And uh, the second aspect uh, will be also building on last week's. But this is one that's just as hard uh, as the first one. And I told you last week that there's nothing harder in a Christian's life than guarding this attitude of heart. And then the thing we're going to talk about today is certainly just as hard, but it's also just as important. But I want to talk to you today about the aspect of God's will in your life versus your own will in your life. I want to talk to you about understanding God's will. You know, most Christians, they don't even understand uh, what the will of God is. Uh, they have no clue of, of God's will is for their life. And, you know, and many times Christians who I think they're doing wonderful and they're helping me and doing this, they'll make an appointment and come over and they'll say, Bob, I, I don't even know. I'm doing a lot of things and I, they're good things and I'm not really doing anything bad, but I, I just don't know if I'm really in God's will for my life. And those are great questions to ask, and those are questions that I want to answer today that when you leave here, if you pay attention, you know, you'll, uh, you'll get the answers to those questions. You've got to remember, and I tell you this all the time and just about everything that we go through, life is about choices. And we have a free will. We talked about it last week to be able to choose uh, what we do and what we don't do. And uh, this aspect of God's will in your life versus your own will in your life uh, is, a, is a great study. And we'll, we'll talk about it today. And all the great verses that we need are here in this passage. Now, I want to begin reading today in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's pick it up in verse 7. And we'll come down here to around verse 14. Here's what he says. Therefore, as ye abound in everything in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, See that you abound in this grace also. Now, i got to stop right there before I read it. That's exactly a caption of what we talked about last week. You're to, grow in, you're to grow in all of these things. You're to grow in all of the things. But he says you got to make sure that you're still growing in grace because grace is the blanket by which all this is wrapped around. I speak not by commandment but by occasion. In other words, there's no Old Testament law on this. I'm taking the occasion as a New Testament uh, apostle to give you something that's not found in the Old Testament is what he's saying. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the uh, forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Now, that's a great verse. That's the job of a Christian. The job of a Christian between God's will and your will and all that you understand about what God did for you 
and what you do or what you don't do by your own free choosing and your own free will proves the sincerity of your love. There's some great verses here. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that she through his poverty might be rich. And herein I give you my advice, for this is expedient to you, uh, for you who have begun before not only to do but also to be forward a year ago. Now therefore perform uh, the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of which ye have. For if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. For I mean not that uh, other men be eased, and you burdened, but by an equity, that now uh, at this time your abundance may be a supply, uh, and that want, and that their abundance also be a supply uh, for your want, that there may be uh, equity or equality. All right, let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you for the time that we've had today. Thank you for those that are here today. We pray now you'll take this time and use it for your honor and glory. We love you. We thank you for the word of God that you've given us and for the men and women who <clears throat> want to dedicate their life to uh, helping others and, and doing what God has saved them for. And Lord, uh, we just thank you as we look forward to this next year with all that we're going to do, with uh, all that uh, uh, you've given us and the tasks that lie before us. And uh, we're just excited about the fact that we can, we can do something and that you're going to train people and give them what they need. Bless us now today and thank you for the visitors here. We pray that they'll be blessed by what is said. And we'll love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, what he's saying down here in verse 11, 12, and 13, and 14, I, it kind of looks like it's a little confusing, and I want you to be able to put a note in along this. Here's what he's saying. This is certainly not our message today, but I like to explain it as we go. What happened was that this church at Corinth had started a year ago to take up and get this offering ready for the four saints of Jerusalem. And then uh, things got really bad, and they, they quit doing it. And then when Paul wrote them after 1 Corinthians, they started to pick it up again. And what he's saying down here in these last couple of verses about the equality or the putting all the balance together, he's simply saying, look, I don't want one person to be burdened more than another. I mean, you started it and then you couldn't finish it and now you've got right with God and now you're going to finish it. That's great. I want to air all the Christians, whoever are trying to help this from all the different churches, I don't want the burden to fall on one person. He says, what you were willing to do a year ago, now you're going to perform the performance. You're going to bring it about. And that's really what, he, what he's talking about here as he lays this thing out, uh, just so you have an understanding how that chapter. <clears throat> but before I jump into the second issue today about God's will, <clears throat> there's another great principle here and a great verse that I, I want to draw your attention to. And certainly this is a verse that every child of God should memorize in your heart. It is certainly one of the greatest verses in the Bible. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you don't have this on a 3 by 5 card or you don't have this memorized or it's not marked in your Bible, you want to mark it today. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. I think with all that we're talking about, I think with every aspect of the ministry, attitude of heart, willingness to do, giving of your own self first, all of those things, this verse is really the verse that says everything that we're trying to convey and talk to you. Uh, knowing, knowing the grace uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that God gave us. You know, grace in this great verse is simply the fact that God had all the riches of the universe. 
He was the aristocracy of heaven. He had everything that, that, that God could give anybody. And yet when you look at it in that great verse, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you know what he had. Though he was rich, he, was, he had everything. We talk about he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I got news for you. He owns the hills. He owns everything. Everything that God created was put at his feet. Everything. There was nothing that he did not have dominance over. There was nothing that he did not have. Yet the Bible says that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. The greatest concept of ministry that will drive you to serve God, if you're drivable, the greatest aspect that if God is ever going to get a hold of your heart, that you're going to do something for him, get you to that point where you choose through your own free will based on what God has done for you. The only thing that will ever turn that lock of your heart is the fact that you realize that he had it all, and yet he gave it all up. He gave everything up that he had because he saw that your need and my need was greater than everything that he had. If you ever fathom that concept, if you ever allow that to penetrate your heart, get into your mind and get into your very soul, the very fact that God who owned everything, that he was the riches of glory, He had everything there was, but when he looked down through eternity, he saw you and he saw me, and he saw that our need, what we needed, was greater than everything that he had, and he was willing to put it aside for you and for me. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly one of the great concepts. And really, that's the model of ministry. Right here in this church, the church at Corinth, uh, giving up, it's, it's, it's the aspect of every aspect of ministry, giving up all that you and I have and all that you and I are because somebody else's need is greater than what we want to do with our lives. You follow that same model that Christ did when he had everything and he saw you and me in our need and he was willing to give up everything that he had simply because my need, your need, he esteemed greater than all that he had. That's the key to ministry. In all that you have and all that God has given you, in all your abilities and all the things that you, uh, you fancy in this world, in this life, you look beyond that and you see down the road men and women, young men and young ladies, people whose need is greater than what we have and we're willing to put aside and and put that aside and to become and do what God wants us. Greatest single principle, I, I think, uh, from which everything hinges on. And that's what the churches Corinth have done. They're just, I mean, they're a very poor church to begin with. Verse 2 says that they're giving out of their deep poverty. Not just poverty, deep poverty. They don't have anything themselves. Uh, and it's an incredible study. Uh, they're in deep poverty, yet they gave to other Christians. And, and I know, and I know in America, it, it's hard for American Christians. It's hard for me. American Christianity have no concept of that kind of giving of yourself. American Christianity, I'm not kidding you. Americans in general, they're self-centered, they're self-serving, and their life is about self-gratification. They only want what they want the way they want it. And the concept of giving 
to others when you have nothing yourself? It's hard to grasp. And yet this church here at Corinth who had nothing, that were in deep poverty, yet they saw the church in Jerusalem and they counted their needs greater than their needs. You know, in American Christianity, and I don't, I don't speak a lot about it, but, you know, we're in the chapter, so we got to deal with it. But American Christianity basically does four things or four attitudes about their giving. One, American Christians who give, they usually give out of their abundance. Yeah, if they don't give out of their abundance, many of God's people just give them themselves or whatever, their finances, out of what's left over. You know, you get everything you want first, and then if there's anything left, then God gets it. There's a lot of God's people that do things, give things, begrudgingly, out of necessity, the Bible says. They got a bad attitude about it, and they're, they're, they're just, uh, you know, they give, but they, <laughs> they'll give, they'll do this, they'll do that, they'll do this, they'll give this, but they're always complaining about it. Then you have some who get God's salvation, take all that God's got, and they never give anything back. You see, this church, the church at Corinth, they recognize the grace of God. They had recognized what God had given up to them. And what you're seeing now is they're reproducing that in their own aspect of giving of themselves first. And you're seeing it work all the way through. That's the model. That's the model. The Bible says they were in deep poverty, yet they counted the saints at Jerusalem worse off than themselves. And I say that because we as Americans, we don't understand deep poverty. Not yet, anyhow. And I don't mean that there isn't, God's, there isn't people who go through some tough times. There certainly is. But even in that, it's safe to say that, what, 98% of the time, people get into the tough times they get into because they don't do what's right with what they have to begin with. To find people who really love God and serve God and yet are in deep poverty and yet they continue to function without that poverty being a hindrance is a rare thing to find today. It really is. And American Christians just cannot ever get to that. I remember when I was in Romania and this was back in probably oh, right after the wall came down and uh, communism had pretty much uh, dissipated and uh, I, I had... For almost two years, I had teams of 20 people flying, crossing in the air, going into the uh, former Soviet bloc countries, discipling churches, working with them, helping them. And I'll never forget one time I was in Romania, and Romania, at that particular point in time, was just destitute. I mean, I remember going down and, 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 and standing, uh, watching people stand in line at a, in a grocery store. Uh, that was about half the size of this room. And, and people had begun to line up at 4 o'clock in the morning uh, just to get some bread. And uh, they ran out of bread. Uh, they ran out of bread uh, 15 minutes and hardly nobody got anything. Well, I went into the store. Shelves were bare. All that was on there was a couple of a canned bottles or something that I wouldn't have touched if you'd have paid me the New York lottery for. It was, it was destitute. I was staying with a Christian family. And they were one of the sweetest families I, I, ever, I ever met. And that's why I, 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 I talk, uh, uh, you know, about it's so important sometimes to, to get uh, to see other cultures and what they go through. These people had nothing. They had no indoor plumbing. They had a bathtub. 
but water was so limited that they decided on their own selves that because I was an American and I was a guest and they were so happy to have me and I felt, I, I never have felt more humbled and never have felt more worthless than being in that scenario. They had nothing, I had everything, and yet I was envying what they didn't have and languishing in what I did have. I watched a couple or a young family that would not take a bath for a week because water was so rationed and they wanted to save it for me. They had no food. There was no grocery store. They grew their food. They slaughtered whatever animals they have. They killed the only one of three chickens that they have to provide a meal. And yet when we sat down to eat, they, it, was, it bothered me so much, but yet what do you do? You, you, there's a time when you have to accept something like that even though you, you won't want to do it. They would have dinner. They would have some vegetables and a, and a chicken and, and this or that. They would do everything they could because I was a guest in their home. But then they would sit back and not eat till I ate to make sure that I got to eat. What do you do with that? You, you don't want to rob them of the blessing because you know that th- this, this is real Christianity. But it's absolutely the most humbling thing I, I ever went to. The verse talks about in verse 8 about proving the sincerity of our love. And that couple in Romania, they gave out of their deep poverty. They gave out of their deep poverty. Barclay Fonestock was a missionary to Ethiopia. I haven't talked to Barclay for 20-some years. But he was in Ethiopia when it was communist. And uh, he went through some very tough times in Ethiopia. And Ethiopia uh, was one of the poorest countries on the planet at that particular point in time. And they, they, he was telling me the story how that they, they got a little church together and, and a group of people and they, they didn't have a place to meet. And the people were so poor. And he said, and he came back and told the story. And I remember him telling the story in front of 2,500 people. And they just, it, it, never, it never touched or moved anybody when he told this story. How that they wanted to, and he was a guy who had seen it. The deep poverty coming back to an American Christianity in a church with an $80,000 sound system and the pastor driving a, a Ford Lincoln and everything out there, and he's trying to relate to, to God's people what deep poverty is. He talked about how the fact that they wanted to build a church building, and they got the 20 or 30 or 40 people together, and they, they, they wanted to take up an offering. And he said they, they, they loved God. They wanted a church so bad, but nobody had anything. He said that they were actually, actually uh, husbands and wives putting in their wedding rings and the offerings so they could sell them and, and build a church. He said, but the all crowning thing that broke my heart, he says one lady, one her lady sold herself into slavery and took the money from that and gave it to build the church. American Christianity has no concept of that. American Christianity, and and that's why we are the way we are and so indifferent to the things of God. I was in Korea a number of years ago with a missionary there, and we got off the plane, and we drove uh, in a bus over mountainous country for eight or nine hours to get to this little place. And I, it was another church that was with us at that particular point in time, about 40 people. And we were going we to try to help however we could. 
And I'll never forget, we got off, we drove all night long, got off the bus about 10 o'clock in the morning. Everybody was tired, and well, my people was on one bus, and this other guy with his people on the other bus, and, and I got my people rallied up, and I said, you know what? I told you to sleep on the bus. We got to hit the ground running, this other group over here. I never like going with other groups because... I, I can train my people. I always can't be responsible for somebody else. But they looked across the field, and here was a dad plowing the field with his son hooked up to the plow. And immediately, the American tourists got their cameras out and started taking pictures. Some of them thought it was funny. Some of them laughed. They thought it was the most hilarious thing in the world until the missionary told them that the church had suffered a devastating fire and they were trying to rebuild it and had no money. And that dad and that boy took the only ox that they had and sold it and gave the money to refurbish that church, but the plowing still had to get done. Prove the sincerity of your love. I'm just telling you, this is where American Christianity is. And that's called giving out of deep poverty. And that's what American Christians know nothing about. Uh, you know, I hear God's people all the time. I, I mean, I hear it all the time, talk about the fact, you know, and I don't ask them. I just hear them. I guess they're just justifying their conscience. You know, well, they, we talk about offering. We talk about this. And they, and they always say, well, you know what? I, we can't afford to tithe. You know, we just, we can't afford uh, to give anything. I mean, uh, and, and, you know, we, they gripe about it or they just simply say, hey, look, we can't do it. And yet, if you would go to their home, there isn't a, there isn't a home that I ever went to that doesn't at least have one car in the garage, usually two. You walk inside the house, there's flat screen TVs, there's plasma TVs, there's two or three TVs in every room. They got DVD players in every one of them. They got decent furniture. Everybody has their own bed, three meals a day. They have microwaves, they have an oven. They all have cell phones. They have iPods, computers, or smartphones. They have decent homes. They all get to take a vacation every year. They wear decent clothes. They all have more shoes than Dillard's does. They have guns, they have boats, they have cable TV, they have internet, they have dishwashers, they have refrigerators, they have, they have washers and dryers. Man, we're almost destitute, aren't we? You know what? I hope at the judgment seat of Christ that God grants all of us the chance and the honor in line to go up to stand between a little Romanian couple, a little Ethiopian girl, and a little Korean guy to prove the sincerity of your love. And I want to tell you, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 is a great verse to memorize. It's the source and the basis for everything that you and I are going to do. Understanding that God who had everything gave up everything because your need and my need was greater than what he had. When you get to that point in your life, you won't laugh about restart and think it's stupid. That's American Christians for you. When you get to that point, you'll see the need for everybody to get involved, to make sure our kids get a camp this year that's going to put them over the top and give them like little Gavin did. When you start to see and understand those things, it doesn't matter. You begin to, re- well, what am I, why am I wasting my time preaching? I'm just going to get into my verse and then I'll do some serious preaching here. Now, verse 9, as I gave, is a great verse and a great principle. But today, I want to, I, I, that was a bonus. I just couldn't pass that verse up. 
But I want to talk to you about God's will in your life over your will in your life, and it really all goes back, and that was a great introduction to it. But the verse we're going to talk about today is verse 12. And it's our, in this verse, it's our verse that we're going to lay out today, uh, and I think it'll help you. He says in verse 12, For if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that that a man hath, and not according that he hath not. Verse 11 says that this church had a readiness to will. In other words, their will was ready to turn it over to God. They were ready to will. And the Bible says as far as a, a, a ministry of giving to others, you first have to be, have a willing mind. And then he says, if you do, well, let's go on. It's a tremendous principle. He's saying if man is willing, a willing mind to do what God asks of him, he's accepted on that basis. What that man has or what that man doesn't have never comes into question. In other words, whatever God calls you to do, if you got the grace and the faith and are willing to do it, he'll supply you, call you, and give you all you need to accomplish it. That's the principle. That's what he's saying. He's saying it isn't about what you have or what you don't have. Here's a church that had nothing. It goes back to not what you do or what. It goes back to your free conscious choice of are you willing to do with your life what God has called you to do? And very frankly, most God's people are not. You know, man's will is an incredible thing. The human will is an incredible thing. I was watching last week uh, uh, the story of Kathy Gifford, who was the senator who was shot in the brain out there and uh, where, uh, wherever she was, and the remarkable cover, recovery she made. I can say, and I don't even know her, I just saw the story, read a lot of things about her, but I can tell you just by, the, by, by her husband and by their relationship and the kind of person she is, the doctors did a great job, but I want to tell you what got her through was that little gal's will, the will to survive. I read a story, I can't think of his name right now, I read a story about the guy who crowned Mount Everest. Now keep in mind, Mount Everest is something like five miles high. And if you start going up, you get to 10,000 feet, you, you, you get low in oxygen and you get some problems. He climbed the whole Mount Everest up and back without any oxygen. Incredible. That's the, that's the, that shows you the depth of, of man's will, what he can do when he puts his mind to it. I, I think the greatest picture story of, of man's survival and his will to survive, I, I first bumped into it when I was... I was 12 years old. Uh, we got a Life magazine, and on the front of it was a picture of, of some draped bodies in flags in a little circle in the desert. And over the caption of Life magazine, it simply said, The Lady Be Good. And I read that article, and, and years, I've never forgotten it. I, I, I bought every book on it I could find. I did every study on it I could find. And it was, it was, to me, it, was, it goes down in military history as the greatest survival story and the greatest declaration of man's will. Back in 1943, a, a B-24 that flew out of Naples to bomb, or flew out of Benghazi to, to play a mission against Naples, Italy, uh, was, uh, uh, was called A Lady Be Good. And on the way, uh, they got cloud cover. They dropped their bombs in the Mediterranean. They didn't hit it, and they were flying back. And what happened was that the navigator missed the, missed the checkpoint, and, and they, they thought that they were flying out 
uh, into the ocean and were lost, when in actuality they had flown right over their base. They weren't over water at all. They were over the Libyan desert, some 300 miles off course. They, it was nighttime. They couldn't tell anything. They're thinking they're over water. They can't get anybody on their radio. The radio beacon is saying they're flying, they're flying to it, and they're thinking they're following that, going to it. But in actuality, they had flown over it. And the beacon that they shot, they got was after they had passed it. And they crashed in the Libyan desert. They all bailed out. They thought they were over water. They hit the desert and they realized they made a terrible mistake. The plane just kind of feathered its way on down and came down and crashed about a half a mile uh, where they were. And, and for, for 17 years, 17 years, the Lady Be Good was missed as Michigan action. And nobody ever knew what happened to them. Around 1958, 59, somewhere in there, 17 or 18 years after the fact, a, a petroleum uh, uh, group was over in the desert looking for oil. And they came across this B-24 that had landed in the desert. And it looked like it, it, it had just landed there. And it was a great mystery. No crew was found around it. They knew they bailed out. The parachutes were gone. It was almost like the plane was preserved. The radio still worked. The machine gun still fired. There was still coffee in the, and sandwiches in the bays where they kept it. And it was one of the greatest mysteries that the Air Force had ever found. That same petroleum crew, as they were looking for oil, found about 70 miles away a little camp of four or five bodies. And... They called the army back in. They come over. They, they recognized them as the, as the crew from this plane. They were missing three or four guys. They weren't all there. Later on, they found one guy's parachute didn't open, and he found him about a quarter of a mile from the plane. But they found the log in the diaries of the captain. His name was Robert Toner. And they began to read through there what happened and put it all together. They crashed in that Libyan desert. And for eight days... For eight days, they traveled over 120 miles on only a half a canteen of water for eight guys. And they traveled over there trying to get where they were going, and they all, it was freezing at night. It was 130 degrees during the day. They wrote in the, uh, the most pitiful entries you ever saw as I got close to the end, how they're all praying. They all couldn't go any farther, and two or three guys went on to try to get help, and they had to stay there, and that's where they died. Later on, about two years later, that same British Petroleum group found the other two guys, and then after that, uh, a group found uh, uh, the last guy. But it goes down in the annals of military history as the greatest testament to man's will that they were not going to give in to the circumstances, that they traveled over 100 miles on a half a canteen of water for eight people with no food, that they survived the freezing nights and 100 blazing plus temperatures. But in time, they all died. Man's will is a very powerful thing. Sometime you have some time in a rainy afternoon, Google Lady Be Good. You'll get, oh, it's an incredible story of what, what it's all about. But man's will is an incredible thing. And in this verse here, he's saying that's the problem. Man's will, he holds on to it over God's will. When God saved you, when God saved you, he, that, that, when it talks about giving of your own self first, that's what it means. 
It means you surrendering your will to God's will. It means you giving God uh, what, what you want to keep for yourself. And the verse down here says, For if there first be a willing mind is accepted according to what he hath and not what he, what he hath not. What you have or what you don't have never come into question. God doesn't care if you're in deep poverty. God doesn't care if you're a multimillionaire. What God wants is your will, will to give unto him to accomplish his will. It doesn't matter what you have. The great example of that is Moses back in the Old Testament. Moses is a great example. God wanted to call him out and use him as a great tool to bring the nation of Israel out of Egypt. But Moses always was alibying, just like so many of God's people. He says, I can't do it. He keeps telling him over and over again, what am I going to say to Pharaoh? What am I going to do? What am I going to tell him? And he basically says what so many of God's people says. He says, God, I'm not, I don't know if I'm able to do what you want me to do. God looked down and said, Moses, I wasn't asking you to be able. I was asking you to be willing. Because Moses, if you're willing, I'll be able. Boy, in the story he was, wasn't he? Most God's people are not willing to give God their will. And yet, I'll be honest with you, and you know this is true. It's true of everybody in this room, including me. The greatest battle we have faced in our life after we are saved is that simple battle. Are you going to keep everything you have and God has given you to yourself and run it through your will? Are you going to give it to him and his will? That's the battle. Now, boy, I'll tell you what, you can see people that struggle with that and go through that, and I want to tell you, it shows. It shows that there's a battle going on. Somebody said one time, according to our, 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 our will over God's will, a great little truth. They said that in, in life, there comes a place where God's will will run one way, and our will will run opposite the other way. He says, where they cross, where God's will and your will crosses, where they cross, that's where you stop and remember what God did for you, where your will and his will come to a cross. Because it was on that cross that he gave up what he had because your and my need was greater. And it's at that cross is where our will should stop and God's will should begin. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now let me explain something else here. And this is a very confusing thing to most people. God's will is never you or me doing anything. There's two aspects of this aspect of the will of God, will of man in ministry. And people never can seem to get them straight. God has a will for your life and God has a plan for your life. They're a lot like the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. We've talked about that New Year's Eve and we've talked about it many, many times. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are different, but they're connected. And the will of God for your life and the plan of God for your life are different, but they're connected. Much like the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. One is spiritual and one is physical. Just like the, the will of God and the, and the plan of God. One is physical, one is spiritual. And God's will for your life, he has for everybody in this room. And it's absolutely the same. God's will for you in here, if you're a saved person this morning, 
is exactly the same as it is for the person sitting next to you this morning. I hear people all the time get up and, 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 and you know, and I'm a key guy on exactness in the Bible. I, I think things ought to be exact when you talk about the Bible. I think because it lends confusion. And I know it's true because of what I'm going to say. I don't know how many times I've heard a young Christian, a missionary, a preacher get up and start to give his testimony or talk about the work. And they talk about the fact that, well, you know, God's will for my life is to be a missionary. God's will for my life is to be a pastor. And the moment they start talking that way, they may be the greatest guy in the world, and God may be using them, but I'm going to tell you right now, when they start talking that way, it tells me they do not understand the difference between God's will and God's plan. God's will, God's will for your life is the same as everybody in this room. God's plan for your life was different from everybody in this room. God's will for your life is something that's spiritual. God's plan for your life is what God's going to have you do. God's will for your life is the same for everybody in this room. God's will for you after you get saved is that you become more like Jesus Christ every day of your life. That's God's will for your life. God's will is not for you to be a missionary, not for you to be a pastor. God's will for you, once you get saved, is that every day of your life, you, you die to self, you get more like him, you yield yourself to him, and you make sure that the will in your life, spiritual, is what God's in your life changing you to be more like Christ. God's plan for your life is the physical side of it, what God wants to do with you. It may be God's plan that you're a missionary. It may be God's plan that I'm a pastor. And God's plan will be different for everybody in this room. But God's will will be the same. And the only way you ever understand and fulfill God's plan is to first fulfill God's will. God's plan overall is what God has planned for you to accomplish in your life for you to do. But God's will is your willingness to accept it over your own will because of you recognize the grace and what he gave up and what he did for you. Hey, it's very clear when you come through the Gospels and you see the model of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said in John chapter 4, verse 34, My meat is to do the will of him that has sent me and to finish his work. He had one goal, and that was he came to do the will of his Father. And after he saves you and gives up everything for you, it has to be your will and my will that we give up everything to finish the work for the Father. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that she through his poverty might be rich. Now, Somebody says, oh, how do I know God's will for my life? How do, I, how do I know what God's will is? How do I know I'm in God's will? It's real simple. When you make, number one, God's will in your life, and you become more like him every day of your life, you'll never, 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 never have to worry about am I fulfilling God's plan or not. You see, they're different, but they're connected. You cannot, under any circumstances, no way on this planet, do God's will in your life and miss God's plan in your life. What happens is people, they worry about doing something for God instead of first being something for God. And that'll end in disaster every time because that's not the way God does it. The problem is that God's people just, they don't know the difference. Just as I've told you a hundred, a thousand times that the understanding the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven is the key to figuring out the Bible 
Understanding the difference between the God, God's plan for your life and God's will for your life is the key to your relationship with God and fulfilling the ministry that God saved you for. And the problem always comes down to one thing, our will. Oh, I'm glad you saved me, God, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Oh, God, I'm sure glad you saved me. That's all right for you to give up everything for me, but I'm keeping everything I got. The truest statement I ever heard was a quote by Bob Jones Sr. that he quoted back in the 20s. He said that the mark of a successful Christian is not one that never fails. The mark of a successful Christian is not a man who never falls in life. The mark of a successful Christian is not a man who doesn't ever make any mistakes. He says, because we all fail, we all fall, we all make mistakes. He says, the mark of a successful child of God is simply a man or a woman who finds out what God wants him to do with his life and then spend the rest of his life doing it. See, in life, we define things on such a narrow spectrum. You have to look at it on a broader scale. We all struggle. We'll all make mistakes. None of us are perfect. And it's hard to clobber one person for making a mistake when we make our own. But on a broader scale, that's not uh, the mark of a successful Christian is simply a man or a woman or a mom and a dad or some of you young men and young ladies who simply put your will aside, find out what God saved you for, and then give him the rest of your life, putting his will in your life instead of yours. And when you do that, or I should say you only do that by putting together what we talked about last week, the concepts of grace and truth, the concept of giving of your own self first, the concept of understanding God's will for your life, and then fulfilling God's plan for your life. Verse 11 said, but if it takes a readiness to will. Verse 8 says, it takes proving of the sincerity of your love. Verse 12 says, it takes a willing mind. In the Christian life, there's a word that you don't find much anymore. All the new modern Christianity done away with it. Most Baptist churches at one time stood in the Word of God and preached the Word of God. They've all went either charismatic or neo-evangelical, and they've lost all the principles, all the, all the mooring posts, I call them, that we would anchor ourselves to. You don't hear any messages on this anymore. You don't hear preachers talking about it anymore. You don't even hear God's people talking anymore. It's a lost word in Christianity, but it is the key word in all that we're talking about, and it's simply the word consecration. 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 The model for that word is found in the book of Leviticus, in the Old Testament, because it's in the book of Leviticus that you find uh, the consecration of the Old Testament priests. And if you know the New Testament application, you and I are priests after the order of Melchizedek. And you take the book of Leviticus and you break it down, you'll find that there's two aspects. Chapter 1 through chapter 10 talks about the only way we're going to get to God is through sacrifice. That's the only way we're going to get to God. There has to come a time in your life that if you're ever going to get favor with God or get to God, chapters 1 through chapter 10 tells you that the only way you're going to get to God is through sacrifice. Then chapter 11 through 27 says the great theme. You may have to the only way to God may be through sacrifice in chapter 1 and chapter 10, but chapter 11 verse 27 says the only way you're going to walk with God is through consecration. 
And in those chapters, he talks about all the aspects of how the priests were consecrated. Oh, I know it's Old Testament priesthood. I understand that. I know it's always stuff back there that, that uh, but I'm telling you, and I've told you many, many times, everything literal back there was a picture of something spiritual. I mean, it's the book on consecration. You want to learn what consecration is? Go back and study how the Old Testament priests were consecrated, what it meant, get the types down, and then apply it to your own life. I'll give you an example. Years ago, when I first started reading the Bible, you know, I was coming through here, and I remember coming through Leviticus, and I read some of this stuff, and I thought, it's the goofiest stuff in the world. I don't understand it. But I can say, after 35-plus years in the book and going through some things in life, I understand a little better now. He goes over there in chapter 8, verse 24, and he's talking about the consecration of the priest. And he talks about it. He takes that, he takes that uh, sacrifice, and he takes that blood, and he tells you right there in that passage that he takes that blood and he says he puts blood on the right tip of the ear. He puts blood on the right thumb. And he puts right, a blood on the, on the right big toe. Somebody says, what's that all about? It shows you a picture of consecration. It's a picture of what it is. You got the blood on the right ear because that'll affect what you hear and what you think. So you're covered under the blood. You got it on the right thumb because right hand of God, right in the side in the Bible is always the right side with God. He puts it on the right thumb because that represents your hands, what you're going to do for God, covered by the blood. Then he puts it on the big toe, and a big toe is a great study in the Bible. I don't know if you know that or not. But he puts the blood on the big right toe because the big right toe, you, maybe you have one now, but if you lose one, you're completely out of balance. It's that big right toe or big toe that keeps you in balance. You take it off, you're out of balance. You can't walk. You lose your thumb, you can't do hardly anything. Back in the Old Testament in Judges chapter 6, remember that guy back there? I can't remember his name, but they finally caught up, and you know what they did? They cut off both his thumbs, and they caught both off his big great toes. That's what they did to him. Now, most people don't understand why they did that because the Bible principle is very clear. You can't do anything in life without your thumbs and your big toes. I don't know. Check it out when you go home. Check your dog. You got a guinea pig? Check your guinea pig. You got, you got horses? Check your horses. You got cows? Check your cows. The only being that's got five toes are, are humans. Animals have four. Now, back in Judges chapter 1, the reason why they cut off his thumb and his big toes, because that was humiliating to him, and the rest of his life it made him like an animal. But the principle goes beyond that. The principle that goes beyond that in the picture here is that those things represent what we do for God. Your right ear represents what you hear and what you allow to go in, which is going to affect the way you think. So, being consecrated, you want to have your ear covered by the blood of what you hear because what you hear and what you think will affect what you do with your hands. So you want to make sure that the hand, the big thumb, is covered by the blood with what you do with your hands. And in the big toe, it, whatever you think, whatever you do is where you're going to go. Totally consecrated from head to toe. That's the picture. The Christian life should be totally consecrated to the will of God and to fill the plan of God. And the verse for our consecration in the New Testament is the verse we have right here in verse 12. This is it. For if there first be a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. If at any point in your life, as a Christian, 
You want to find out if you're really in God's will? Verse 12 is where you check your oil level. It is the dipstick for Christianity. And there are certainly some dipsticks in Christianity. If you want to ever find out if you are in God's will or you're not, it doesn't take a theological degree. It doesn't take a color chart. It takes verse 12. Just ask yourself, are you willing to go? Are you willing to do? Are you willing to be whatever God wants of you? No matter what, you have to give up. That's what it is. That's the test. You can give it to yourself in 30 seconds or less and know exactly where you're at. Now, you need to know this, too. Sometimes God will test you with a certain thing just to see if you're really willing, and then he'll pull it back. Model of that is Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. God wanted to see if he was willing to offer up his own son as a sacrifice. He let that man get all the wood, get all the fire, get it to the right place. He let that man think about it for three or four days. He gave that man the knife. And just before the final second, before he plunged that knife into that kid, he pulled his hand back and said, stop. Sometimes God will do that. As long as a child of God is flexible enough in his life to go and to do whatever God wants him to do, you're in the will of God. Because that's exactly what Christ did. That's the model. He had everything, and yet he gave it up because your need and my need was greater than all that he had. There you are. It's not complicated. Many times God's people get mad at God. They get bitter at God. They get mad at other people. Uh, So sickness or death or maybe some hard time or something doesn't go the way they want it to go in their life. Those are the places in your life and my life where you have to be very careful, my dear friend. Because, you know, we get, a, we get so focused on what we, our, our personal assault was as we perceive it. We get so upset about it didn't go the way I wanted it to go. We get so upset sometimes and mad at God or this person or that or even me because he didn't deal with it the way I would have liked for it to be dealt with. Well, just put this down and remember it. The Lord may be trying you to see if you're willing to take a bigger load for him, and if you can't handle the load he's brought in your life right now, he'll cancel out what's coming down the line. Taking a bad, hurtful, tragic circumstance of life to test your metal to see what you're made of. But American Christians have a tough time with that too. When I talk about being flexible, when I talk about being adaptable or pliable, I'm talking about you being ready to yield at any time to God your own self and your will over his will. I'm talking about you looking at what comes in your life that you may not like, that may not work for you, that may not be the way you want it, and begin to realize that this may be God trying to see if I've got the stuff to go to the next level. God's people never look at it that way. You know, the greatest example that I know of of, of, of man's will against God's will in the Bible is a study found back in Genesis chapter 32. I think it's the greatest example anywhere in the Word of God in Genesis on the life of Jacob. And I want to read very quickly for you here. Uh, I'll pick it up in verse 24. Uh, it's a very personal passage to me, but it, it, it says this, And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. 
And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for a prince thou hast power uh, with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, what is thy name? And he said, Therefore it is that thou asked after my name. And the Lord blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Penel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And he passed over, uh, uh, over Peul uh, to the sun, uh, rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the shinu that shrank. Now, in my Bible, if you'd ever look at it, in Genesis chapter 32, right down around verse 24, I have one little simple note. And it's a note that uh, it means an awful lot to me because I understand this passage very well. And uh, I just have one little note there before I start putting all the other notes in. It just simply says, the day God gets you alone. And this picture here, of this great wrestling match with, with the Lord, what this is, is a picture of God wanted to do something with Jacob. God wanted to accomplish something with Jacob. We know from New Year's Eve, the line of coming up through the Bible, how I broke it down when we got to Jacob, from Jacob comes the 12 tribes. We know that Jacob is a necessary part of the equation of God's plan. That from Jacob is going to come 12 boys that are going to come the 12 tribes and then down the line are going to come the Lord Jesus Christ. He's crucial in this. And yet here we are, here we are, Jacob, who is crucial in the plan of God, so stupid and inept of understanding that God had something for him, he won't give up his will so God can endorse his will in his life. He reminds me of so many of God's people today that wrestle with God all the time. And they just don't want to give up. And the reality of this story is, is what God had for Jacob, what he must have for you, and what he had for me. This battle's over Jacob's will, over what God wanted to do with him. God wanted to change his name, bring the 12 tribes from him. You know why? Because the the name Jacob will never work. The name Jacob means schemer. The name Jacob means supplanter. Jacob was a conniving a crook who tried to manipulate every circumstance in life. He wanted what he wanted over what God wanted. And you can't be a Jacob and do God's will in your life. God had to change his name. This is not a picture of, of, of Jacob's battle over the surrendering of his will. It's a picture of our struggle, you and me, and keeping our own will. And a creed of breaking Jacob's own will as he come down through there and, and, and getting to the place where God could do him, it was Jacob had to first of all understand. God really, uh, God, God breaking, God really breaking our will is no different than a parent breaking the will of your little child when it's growing up. I tell you in parenting all the time, the thing that you got, every kid's different. You got some kids that grow up and they're no problem at all. You got other kids that grow up and they got, they got, uh, they got, they got, they got their own will. And your job of a parent is to break that will, but not damage that will. And you've got to find a way to do that. And the Bible tells you how to do that. But you'll find it in your children. And the way that God will break your will is the way that you break their will. Shoot, 
I got two dogs. You can see their will. If you got animals, you see it in them. Why do you think they call a mule stubborn? He's got his own will. I tell my dog not to do that. He looks at me. He knows exactly what I'm telling him. First time I'm not looking, he's doing it again. Why? He wants to exercise his will over my will. You know what I have? You break him in that, you beat the fire out of him. You know how you fix it in your kids? Guess. It ain't called time out. It's called time down. <laughs> the process to breaking our will is so clear here. And you will need this in the people ministry to understand what I'm about to say. I know we'll go through it in great detail when we get to that point, but you need to understand the process in breaking a will. I want you to know this, though, that when God does it to you, you understand what's happening. Of course, if you're not saved, he won't do it to you, and you don't have to worry about it. First thing he did, found in verse 24, God got him alone. See, there has to come a time in your life that the only way you'll listen to God is to God take everything from you. That was Jacob's deal. That was Jacob's deal. Jacob was so busy doing his thing, wanting to exercise his will over God's will, he wasn't even listening to God. So, you know, God had to do, God had to get him alone. And we're the same way. And sometimes God just has to take everything from us. God has to put us on our back. God has to put us down. God has to take what the, everything that we thought was wonderful away from us. And, and that's the only time he'll get our attention and we'll listen to him. So the first part of that process is God gets him alone. Second part's found in verse 25. God touched his thigh and it went out of joint. I don't know if you know it or not, but Jacob limped the rest of his life. You know why sometimes God puts terrible things in our life and things in our life that are struggles to go through that bear marks and scars the rest of your life? It's so you'll remember. Painful experiences we tend to remember. And the rest of his life, he, he hobbled, he limped. It made such an impact on the Jews, to this day, they won't eat that part of the meat. An honest Christian that looks back in his life and understands what I'm talking about will thank God for every painful experience you ever had because in reality, it's probably what got you where you're at today. And God reaches down and touches his thigh and it goes out of joint and it's terribly painful and God sometimes puts painful things in our life because one, we won't listen. He knows we're always going to go back to our own will. And when we start to take that step that direction, you remember the pain. And the third thing, and this is the most important one right here, really, God asked him his name. Jacob means schemer. Jacob means supplanter. Jacob's the type of the worldly child of God who wants his will, not God's will. Jacob's a picture of the Old Testament. When God would change his name, it'd be a, or the old nature, excuse me. Jacob's a picture of the old nature. When God changes his name, that's a picture of you and me getting saved and getting a new nature. But oh no, not Jacob. He had to scheme to get the birthright from Esau. He couldn't wait and realize that Esau is a wicked kid who would have forfeited by sin anyhow. No, no, no. Jacob schemes to get it. Then he schemes to get the birthright. Then the blessing. 
Then when he gets with Laban, he schemes to get the cattle. Laban says, you know what? You take care of my cattle. All the nice cattle that are all one color, I'm going to keep. All the speckled ones and spotted ones you can have. You know what he does? He read in Farmer's Almanac someplace that the way you produce speckled cattle is to go down and cut a certain kind of bush off and feed them that, and it produces, when they have babies, speckled cattle. And so Laban's coming out there and saying, wow, we had 48 calves today. Only one of them was solid. The rest of them were speckled. Manipulated everything. Manipulated everything, just like a lot of God's people. He schemed to get the birthright. He schemed to get the blessing. When Laban tried to scheme him back and give him the wrong wife, he just took it in stride and had a couple more wives. But I think it's relevant in verse 27 when God really began to deal with him, the first thing he said, what's your name, Jacob? I don't know if you know it or not, but that would be a painful remembrance. Back in Genesis chapter 27, that's what his daddy asked him when he deceived him. What's your name, son? Who are you? Oh, God will always bring back the old circumstances when we were crooked to make us deal with who we are. For God would change his name and make him fruitful and blessing of God, he had to deal with the fact that he was a schemer. He had to deal with the fact that he was a supplanter. He had to deal with the fact that he was Jacob. And the only way you do that is to God look you eyeball to eyeball and say, what is your name again? You have to get honest. And I'll tell you right now, only after Jacob's will was broken, he wrestled with him there, and when God finally busted him by touching him on the hollow of his thigh and putting his leg out of joint, and he squealed like a stuck pig, that Jacob surrendered his will to God, and then God changed his name to Israel. And the blessings of God of the 12 tribes of Israel, in which, believe it or not, the whole Gentile world got in on that blessing because the Bible says in John chapter 4, verse 22, the salvation is of the Jew. What you have right now today and what God has given you and your salvation in that book goes right back to Jacob saying yes or no. I've always wondered where I'd be today if Jacob would have never surrendered his will to God's will. And I think of many, many times where people out there today who are waiting for somebody just like you to surrender your will and what God will do with them and how he'll get the blessing to them through you. But just like Jacob fought with the Lord, you fight with the Lord. I fought with the Lord. It comes to the point, ladies and gentlemen, and this is the bottom line, where you look at what you have, you look at what God has given you, you look at all that's around you, and then you see somebody else whose need is greater than yours. I know some of you people laugh about restart. Personally, I like to slap your face off. You know what your problem is? Now, I don't care if you don't go because you're old or you're sick, or you know, but this laughing at it and think it's stupid and it's too good for you, you know what that is? You know what that is? That's you just your will over God's will, and you got all that you got. You got all your ability and all your talents and all that you have. You're not willing to look at somebody else's need that's greater than yours. Amen. Worthless. Absolutely worthless. The willing mind of the child of God. You know, I... Being an old military guy myself, I, I, love the, I, I love the recruiting slogans. I remember one time years and years ago after God got me out of the Army, 
I, I always I always had a thing for it, you know. And my sister and I were downtown for something, and she was doing something, and I kind of walked over there, and there was an Army recruiting officer in there with all those posters, you know, and all those things in there. And I, I'm walking in and looking at all those things, you know, and, and I had been out about, oh, I don't know, a couple of months. Recruiting sergeant come over, and he said, uh, he said, uh, why don't you sign up? And I said, well, I said, uh, I'd like to. And he said, well, he says, uh, he said, I can get you signed up back up. And I told him I had just gotten out. So I can get you back in, get you another grade and get you all those things. And he said, I'd, uh, he said you, you, you look like I can't understand why a guy like you who loved the Army would ever get out of the Army. I can get you back in the Army. And I looked at him and I said, you know what, Sarge, I'll tell you the truth. I am still in the Army. I just got out of Uncle Sam's Army and now I'm in God's Army. I witnessed that old boy right there on the spot. But you know what the old saying is, you get the boy out of the army, you never get the army out of the boy. I love the recruiting slogans that they use to lure young men into the military, young ladies too. Get a shirt that says, Army Strong. Then they come out with, Army of One. I love that ad. They don't play it much anymore about the Navy SEALs. It was at nighttime and the, it was, the moon was in the clouds and the, it would show you in the, in the beach and the waves would come up and the waves go out and they come out and the moon goes behind the clouds and it comes out and the moon's out and the footprints where they come out of the water and then it goes back in, the waves go back in, the footprints are gone. That's a great, that's a great thing. <laughs> I tried that in the bathtub, boat fell out and broke my neck. <laughs> You don't ever hear this one much in the special ops world. There used to be a slogan that you wouldn't put it on a billboard, but it used to say, join special ops, travel to exotic faraway places, experience great skin-winning cultures, meet fine, wonderful, interesting, interesting people, and kill them. <laughs> <laughs> I saw an adding requirement time for a Marine Corps sniper school based on one of the Hallmark card deals. You know, they shoot guys at 400, 500, 600 meters. Charles Hathcock cut, shot somebody a mile away one time. And they had a little slogan down there, become a sniper. Long distance calling, the next best thing to being there. <laughs> the Marines come up with the few, the proud Marines. I always liked the Marines were looking for a few good men. But the latest one the Marine Corps comes out with, I think, is probably the best one. I saw this the other day driving back into Raytown, and it simply said on a big billboard, United States Marine had a tough-looking guy up there, and it said, we don't take applications. We take commitments. And, you know, I looked at that and thought about that, and I thought to myself, that's so true of Christianity. You see, most Christians will turn in their application, but they'll never make their commitment. God's will over your will. A ready mind, a willing mind, a readiness to will. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became more, that ye through his poverty might be rich. God, with all that he had, gave up everything that he had because he looked down through time and he saw me and you, and he saw us in our sin. He saw us as no way we could make it. And God simply said to himself, I'll give up everything I have because the need of Bob Alexander, the need of Bob Grigg, the need of Eve, Nikki, 
the need of everybody in down there in Kansas City in that church, the need of William, the need of Zach, the need of Diane, their need is greater than all that I have. So he gave it up, left it. He became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For you know the grace. I hope you do. I hope you do. But it takes a ready mind, a willing mind, a readiness to will. Giving of your own will first because you do know that grace. And by all of that, you come to the place in your life that you prove the sincerity of your love. Every head bowed and every eye closed.